This morning, uh, we begin kind of a a series of sermons for uh, our Easter season. We're going to come back to Genesis. Of course, you know me. I mean, I meant to finish the Genesis uh, series before this series, and of course, I didn't do it. And so we'll have to come back uh, to Genesis, but I'm going to do for the next uh, several weeks through Easter, going to do a series of sermons called Cross Dimensions cross dimensions, and uh, here's my heart with this series of sermons as, uh, as we seek to just prepare our hearts to worship the risen Christ. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Think about that. The word of the cross, or another way to put it is the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then Paul says something really interesting in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, that the ultimate goal in the Apostle Paul's ministry to the Corinthians was to know nothing and to preach nothing and to make manifest nothing but Jesus crucified on the cross. Now, here's the problem. The problem that we have, and I'm hoping that this series will at least just kind of address this and help us through this, is the problem is is that the cross has, in, in many cases, has become nothing more than a sentimental symbol, something that we kind of look at and we want to kind of get nice feelings about around Easter time. Like, like we just kind of, oh yeah, I have a cross I wear around my neck, isn't that nice? Or... We have, we have a, isn't this a great cross, right, on the, on the wall? Uh, it's a great cross. But I want you to know something, that sitting around and looking at a cross on the wall does absolutely nothing for our lives. Did you know that? And that wearing a cross around your neck does absolutely nothing for your life. Like, there, there, there's no power in just like, I'm just going to get around like a symbol of the cross, and I'm going to automatically be changed. I wish the gym worked like that. You know, I wish, I wish I could just go to the gym and just sit there and get fit and then leave. I wish I could look at a, a weightlifting machine and go, I'm going to look at that weightlifting machine, and I'm going to get buff. It doesn't work like that. In fact, the Apostle Paul said it's not the image of the cross that is the power of God. It is the message of the cross that is the power of God. It is understanding and comprehending the dimensions of the message of the cross that will change your life. We want our hearts to be weighted and our minds to be informed and enlightened to the message of the cross. You can be changed by the message of the cross without seeing another symbol of the cross for the rest of your life. Amen? You don't need the symbol. You don't need the images. You don't need the fancy, glossy, you know, gold and brass crosses all over the place. You don't need the cross in the, in the frame in your home. What you need is you need the message of God, the message that God brings to your heart and your mind through the message of the cross. 
And so here's what we're going to do. So that, our, that at least we have the opportunity that our hearts might be impacted by the message. We're going to look at the dimensions of the cross by looking at words that the New Testament uses to describe the message of the cross. Today, we're going to look at the word justification, all right? Justification. Then we'll look at redemption. Then we'll look at reconciliation. Then we'll look at propitiation. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll look at mission, all right? And so in order to get justification on the table so that we can experience the power of the cross, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Go to Romans chapter 3. And let's look at verses 21 through 31. And let me, let me just read this passage for you, all right? This is a great passage. Uh, it's really a great summary of the first two chapters of Romans. It kind of brings home uh, the argument of the letter and this dimension of the message of the cross, which we are calling justification. And let me, let, let's look at verses 21 and following. It's kind of a, a little bit of a long passage, but I'm going to go ahead and read it and get it on the table. And then all my remarks will be based on this passage. And, and starting in verse 21, it says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, there's the cross, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, I know that's, man, that is a heavy-hitting difficult passage. There's a lot going on in that passage, but the thing I want you to focus on is the concept of justification. What is the justification of God? And here's what it is. Justification is God declaring righteous, unrighteous people. Justification is declaring an unrighteous person, righteous. That's what justification is. Now, God is right. In fact, it tells us God is righteous. And the word justification or to justify comes from the word righteous. Literally, uh, justify. To justify somebody means to righteous somebody. That's what it means. It means to righteous them, to make them righteous. That's what it means to justify Justification is God declaring, everybody say declaring, 
righteous. Somebody who's not righteous. Isn't that profound? In fact, the very opposite of justification is what? Condemnation. What is condemnation? Condemnation is God declaring guilty somebody. You're guilty. So hear me. This is forensic language. This is the language of the courtroom. This is God as judge, like with the gavel, right? God is the judge, and God wraps the gavel. And when he wraps the gavel, he's either going to declare you and I righteous or condemned. Guilty or not guilty. So what is justification? It is the declaration. Hallelujah. Amen. This is what we want. This is really what, believe me, this is really what we want. We want God, when he wraps the gavel on our eternal life, to say, not guilty, righteous. Okay. Now, there's a couple of problems. We've got problems with this. We've got problems with talking about justification. Number one, most modern audiences get bored. Everybody say bored. Because we're talking about courtroom and forensic language. And people go, why do we got to talk about judicial language and justification and condemnation? And this is just, this is just, we are so distracted in our day and age that we can barely hang on with our attention to talk about courtroom language and God and God being judged. I would much rather and be much more interested in God as Father or, or God, God's love. Let's talk about the love of God through the cross. Why do we have this problem, though? The reason why we have this problem is because you and I, and myself included, by the way, we have forgotten that God is the final judge of all human beings. Repeat after me. God is the final judge of all people. God is the judge of all people. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, in the context, he says in verse 5, But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We have, in essence, lost a fear, a healthy fear, Of God being the final judge of our lives. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 30 and 31 it says. For we know him that is God. Who said vengeance is mine. I will repay. Again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's, New Te- that's not Old Testament, beloved. That is New Testament. But in the psalm, the psalmist says, God, are you not the judge of all people? There's only one wearing the judge's robes, amen? There's only one that holds the gavel over our lives, and that is God. One God overall will judge everybody. Now, here's the good news about that. Guess what? Nobody else gets to be your final judge. Can I get an Amen. This means we don't have to worry about anybody's final verdict on our lives. We don't have to worry about whether people like us or not. 
We don't have to live as people pleasers. We don't have to live our lives going, my whole identity and sense of self-worth comes from what people think about me. I don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because God is the only final judge of my life. And that releases me. That releases me from any kind of bondage I have to what you think about me or what they think about me or whether they think I should go to hell or not. It doesn't matter if people think I should go to hell or not. The only one that matters in my final verdict, the final verdict over my life, is God my creator. Hallelujah and amen. But there's also a warning. God is the final judge. He does determine the final destiny of all people. So when we come to, to Romans chapter 3, and we hear Romans chapter 3 saying that God can justify those who are unrighteous, we immediately go, that's a good thing. I want to know about that. That is important. That is vital. So you see, really... What we have to do is increase our perspective about the majesty of God. God is the final judge. You know, I was just thinking, as I was talking about this, I was just thinking about it. When I was a kid, my dad was a lawyer, all right? You're like, oh, that's the, that's the ground you've been dug out of. Okay. Uh, my dad, though, he was a lawyer, and he was a litigator. My dad made arguments in front of judges and judges and juries and all of that stuff. He did a lot of defense, law, litigation type work. And sometimes I would get to go with him and hear him make an argument for a case. And sometimes I would go and hear him make an argument in front of a, a group of judges. Other times I would make him make an argument for a client in front of a judge. And I can tell you as a little boy going and you see that judge walking in and everybody stands up and they're like, everybody rise! And everybody rises and then he comes in and he's got his, like, you know, his robe and his, he's just there. Everybody sit down, boom, you know, and you sit down and it's just a glorious thing. And let me tell you, one time my dad made an argument in front of a federal judge. Now, federal judges are awesome. I mean, like... We're not talking about like traffic judges. We're talking about like federal judge. It's like, dude. And my dad was like, do you want to go meet the judge? After he made his argument in front of this judge, he's like, do you want to go meet the judge? And I went, not really. <laughs> not, not really because he's, he's got that thing and he's got, the, he's got the thing. And he goes, no, come on, come on. I'll take you, I'll take you into the chambers. And I go, and the chambers were, it's like bigger than this room, right? Could fit a church of 500 people, this chamber. Just the office. The desk alone was the size of my office. Massive desk. And he was this big dude, and he had this booming voice, and he said, well, hello there, son. And I was like, oh, hello, you know. And I remember thinking, this guy is, he still had his robes on, he was in his office. I was like, this guy is awesome. And have you ever been shaken in the presence of somebody? Have you ever been in somebody that you thought was just great and you were shaken? And I was shaken by this judge. Now imagine God. Imagine what it's going to be like when we are under God as our final judge. Do you remember when Isaiah went into the temple of God and it said that, that in, in Isaiah 6, you know, Isaiah was that Old Testament prophet and, 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 and he, he walks in there and he says, I saw the Lord uh, sit, sitting high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
And when you get into the Hebrew, when it says the train of his robe, it means the hymning of his robe. Only the hymning, like the hymn part at the end of the robe, filled the temple. Can you imagine? How many of you guys have sewed? How many of y'all know how to sew? All right, so I'm going to have y'all make all my clothes from now on. Right? But you know, just the hymning of God's robe filled the temple. Now, of course, that was talking about God being the, majest- the majestic king of the earth. But certainly, his judge's robes, just the hymning will fill the temple because he's so superlatively great and overwhelming. And Isaiah said, in the presence of this superlative great king and judge, I am undone. Woe is me. What will we do? Romans chapter 3 says that God justifies us. That there is a process that God has given to human beings so that when we face our judge and he wraps that gavel and he becomes the judge over our lives and gives us the verdict, there is a way to where we will be justified and not condemned. And so we ask ourselves an important question. We say, all right. This is important. So how does God, this is an important question, how does God justify those who don't deserve to be justified? That's the question. How does God bring justification to you and I when you and I don't deserve to be justified? And Romans chapter 3, the passage I just read to you, tells us how a righteous God can righteous people who are unrighteous, how a righteous God can justify a people who are not worthy of justification. And let me give you a few ways he does it. Number one, we say, how does God justify us? He justifies us by grace. God justifies us by grace. He says here in verse 24, well, let me start in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God And are justified, that is declared innocent, that is declared not guilty, by his grace as a gift. How can God make us just? Only, everybody say only. Only by grace. Now some of you, you've been coming to Crosspoint and you're like, I have heard this sermon before. In fact, we just heard it last week. And, but here's the thing about grace. The reason why we keep coming back to the theme of grace is because the Bible keeps coming back to the theme of grace. Amen? And the reason why we need grace hammered into our heads and into our souls so that we will understand its full impact, we have to remind each other and also declare to new people who are coming to Crosspoint that we believe at Crosspoint the most important Christian word you could learn is the word grace. That you must understand grace if you're going to understand the Christian message. So Crosspoint Church, you could almost preach this part of the sermon for you. In fact, you're like, Josh, take a break, drink some water, give me the mic. I know what to say here because I have taught you, I have pastored you, I have shepherded you. What is grace? It's two things. It's an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. That's what the grace of God is. It's getting something you do not deserve from someone who does not have to give it to you. Amen? That's important. Both of those are really important. Because 
I have to realize that if I'm going to be declared not guilty in the presence of God, if the final verdict of my life is going to be justification, it cannot come because of something I've done or I've deserved or I've earned. It must come by grace. But I also must realize that God does not owe me grace. Those two parts are really important. Now, if you go to some churches, some churches, they'll emphasize that God gives you this undeserved gift, but they'll make you think like maybe God owes you that unearned gift, which would be a paradox, of course. You must hold these two things in tension. Grace is an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. And why is that? I'll tell you why. Because religion will come, and religion and religiosity... It will have all the props, it will have all the messages, it will have all the sermons, it will have all the understanding that you can earn God's favor by following the law. That by doing good works, God will justify you based on what you do. And what does that do, Crosspoint? This is important. That makes people arrogant. That's what that does. That makes people self-righteous. That makes people feel and have a false sense of superiority. That message causes us, and we all struggle with this at times. I know I do, and you do too. All of you, even if you've been following Jesus your whole life, you struggle with this too. Sometimes you wake up and you actually begin to think that maybe you deserve God's grace more than other people. Other types of people. Other people who struggle with different things than you struggle with. It's so interesting the things that we make minor issues in our own life, but we make major issues in other people's lives, isn't it? We begin to assume by the way we do church or by the way we think about Bible or Jesus as religious people, we begin to assume, you know what? God really does and should give me grace more than somebody else. It's very easy to slip into the mentality of the Pharisee who went into the temple and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like the tax collector, which, by the way, I do wake up and thank God that I'm not like the tax collector sometimes, right? Who likes tax collectors? There's no way a tax collector could experience the favor of God, right? God, thank you that I'm not like her. Thank you I'm not like him. Thank you that I'm not like them. Because I know that I'm more sterling. I'm more of an exemplar of what it is that you are looking for. This gives Christians sometimes a spirit of criticism. A spirit of division. spirit of self-righteousness. And you know what grace does? Grace says, man, you and I, you know what we get to repent of? We get to repent of our good works being the source of our salvation. We are not only called to repent of our sin, which is also very bad, but we get to repent of that sense of morality in our life that we look to to justify our very existence in the presence of God. And Paul is constantly telling churches, repent of your good works being the source of your confidence with God. Your confidence with God comes from nothing else but the unconditional love and grace of God given to you through Jesus Christ. 
You're like, why is that powerful? I'll tell you why that's powerful. Because it reconciles people. It brings communities together. It, may, it, it means that different people can belong in the same room and grow together and be broken together and be wounded yet growing stronger through the love of God. It means that, that we can welcome people and help people and pray for people and hope great things for people because God can save anybody. Amen. What is impossible for human beings becomes possible for God in anybody's life because grace can justify and save people. This makes us a warm people, a warm community. Grace. We are justified by grace. And not only does it confront, by the way, religious world. But grace also confronts the irreligious world, the secular world. Because what does the secular world say about God? When the secular world begins to journey into spiritual ideas, into spiritual concepts, inevitably, the world says, the secular world says that God owes me salvation. Because I am who I am. Because I'm finding myself. Because I, I've learned to become and to follow my own dreams. Paul outlines the secular world with great articulation in, in Romans chapter 1 when he says that people saying that they're wise have become fools because they've suppressed the righteousness of God in unrighteousness and they've assumed through wisdom, through the folly of their thinking that somehow spiritually they deserve that they have this entitlement to justification, that they are justified just by existing, just by being born, they're justified. Justification not by faith, justification not by grace, but justification by existing. No way that God could judge anybody, much less me. You see, it's interesting, the, the religious world and the irreligious world are closer friends than you think, because both these worlds say that you can save yourself. Both, both worlds have this self-congratulatory perspective, this self-righteousness that's either rooted in religious law or secular perspectives and cultural norms. And neither one can save. We are only saved by grace. We are only justified by grace. I could continue on under that heading, but let me go to the second point. You know, when we talk about grace, the other thing we always say right quickly after we talk about grace, this unearned gift from an unobligated giver is, you know what we call it? We call it free grace. Everybody say free grace. It's free. You know who it's free to? It's free to you and me. We don't have, you know what? You don't have to tithe. You don't have to give to the church. You don't have to do anything spectacular. All you have to do is receive God's grace in an empty hand and just say, I'm empty. I need to surrender. I can't save myself either through. I've tried religion. I've tried irreligion. None of it works. I'm not justified. And so I'm going to receive what only I can get for free. It is free grace. But here's the thing. It's free to you and I, but it is not free to God. God's justification, if he's going to be righteous and make righteous, unrighteous people, then God has to pay the price. And so the second thing that we're justified, not only by grace, we are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Verse 25, 
Well, look at verses 24 and 25. It says, in Romans 3, 24 and 25, it says, We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. And I'll get into that word later. That's a, that's a, first of all, it's a really hard word to say. I, I have to practice it like 10 times before I preach on it. The night before, I like look in the mirror and I go, propitiation, propitiation, propitiation. Anyways, I'm working for you, beloved. I'm working. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The only thing I'll say about propitiation today is that, I mean, generally, broadly, I mean, it's, it's way more complicated and way more exquisite than this, but... But for our purposes today, it really stands for atonement, making amends. It, it, stands, for, it stands for making something one, uh, which wasn't before. And that's important because the wrath of God comes against disintegrated human beings and their brokenness and their sin. That, that the wrath of God will come and judge forever and ever those who have not experienced atonement, those who have not made amends. We are to make amends for our sins to God. We are to pay the penalty for our sins. But here's the bad news. We can't pay the penalty for our sin. There's no way we could ever do it. And so what God does is he puts forward, love that language, God the Father put forward the Son, and the Son died on the cross and shed his blood to make amends, to provide atonement so that God could still be righteous And yet declare unrighteous people innocent. Because Jesus paid the price. He paid the price. You know, I I thought thought long and hard about this. I thought, why why does the Bible say that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins? Why is it blood? Why, Why is the Old Testament filled with all those bloody sacrifices? Why is the Christian faith filled with this message of blood? Some churches don't even sing songs about blood because they're worried nobody will come to their churches anymore because people who are unchurched go into churches and they hear songs about blood and they go, that is very strange. Why blood? And the only thing I can say, I don't, I don't have any good answers for that. The only thing I can say is that blood is a sign of life. Blood is a sign of life. And, and God says that, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift is, is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And there's this great contrast. In fact, you remember in Genesis 4, a hundred million sermons ago and ten years ago, it feels like we preached on Genesis 4 when, when Cain killed Abel. And remember God, remember what God said to Cain? And Cain said, or God said to Cain, Cain, where is your brother? And, you know, Cain was like, my, my, my brother's keeper. He gets all cocky with God, which is not a good game plan. Amen. Like, you don't want to do that. And God says, no, no, no. Abel's blood, the voice of Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Do you remember that? And what Abel's blood was, was it was... The sign of the guilt of Cain. It was, it, was the, it was the voice of humanity's guilt that 
humanity does nothing but still kill and destroy, that humanity does nothing but fall all over themselves and fall all over everybody else. And, and the voice of, 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 of Abel's blood cried out from the ground, Cain's guilt. But then in the New Testament, what we Christians call the New Covenant, Jesus came and gave us a better voice, a, a better message. In fact, Hebrews says it so beautifully. Hebrews says about the blood of Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 23 and following. The writer of Hebrews says that we have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's it saying? It's saying that when Jesus spilled his blood, that the voice of Jesus' blood was that the greatness and the goodness of God could overwhelm the guilt of human beings, that the greatness and the wonder of God's greatness and power is revealed in Jesus' blood, and it tells us something about God, that God is willing to pay the price, that God is willing to make atonement for us. I always think about when Jesus died on the cross, one of the most interesting things he said when he was dying is he said, I thirst. And I thought, what a poignant moment. There's the Son of Man. And he's thirsting. And I don't know how many of you have ever been at a deathbed before. I remember my grandfather, he was 94 years old, and I remember sitting at his, at his bedside when he was dying. And I remember he kept saying, in the middle of the night, he kept saying, I thirst. I thirst. And I remember trying to feed him and just get a little bit of water on a spoon because he could barely keep anything down. or put it just down his throat so that, so that it would relieve his thirst. And that's why when Jesus is dying on the cross and he says, I thirst, it's, it's such a powerful, there's the son of man in this complete moment of vulnerability and he's thirsting. And you know what that is? That's the creator getting swallowed up by creation. That's the creator of the universe getting swallowed up by the very people that he made, getting killed and crucified in our place. And why did he do it? He did it so that he could justify the unrighteous and still be righteous. In fact, when you go back to Romans, it says twice emphatically, look at verse 25, um, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And then look, it says it again in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. In fact, the whole gospel is this glorious demonstration of the power of God and the power of his righteousness to be revealed and to save sinners. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. Everybody say power. 
the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is a revelation of the greatness of God. And I'm convinced that as we come to God and we say, God, you paid the full price. You put yourself on the hook in my place as my substitute to be my righteousness. I'm convinced as we come and we worship him, our hearts begin to get captured with the greatness of God. And you know what? When our hearts begin to get captured with the greatness of God and providing the blood of Jesus Christ, then other things have to leave our heart. Other things have to leave our mind. Many of our Issues in our life, our insecurities, our anxieties, our flaws, our, our sins is because we have this God-sized capacity and we're trying to fill it up. And Paul is inviting us into this courtroom. And he's saying, don't you see how good God is, how powerful? God can justify sinners because he's given his blood. And ultimately, the reason why he does this is for the glory of his name. We ask, I've asked that. Have you ever asked yourself a question as a Christian? You go, like, why did he save sinners? Why is he interested in all this? What's he doing? Why doesn't he just wipe everybody out and start all over again? He's God. He could just, you know, like, zap, done. Got to do it all again. I guess you haven't ever asked that question. You know why he does it? You know why he goes all through all this and why he takes us through this journey of discovering his greatness? Because he is most glorified in it. It shows his value. I've, I've heard people believe, you know, Jesus died on the cross to show you how valuable you are. I don't believe life can be transformed with that perspective. I think life is transformed when we see that Jesus died on the cross to show the value of God. All of our problems in life come because we've refused to see God as great. And we demand that we be seen as great. And you know what the blood of Jesus says? The blood of Jesus says exchange your need for valuing yourself for a valuing of God and his greatness and you'll be changed. Try it. It's just an exchange. That's why Jesus spilled his blood. It, it, has, it speaks. It's, it's a message. It's a voice. I got I to go. I got to finish this up. Okay, so how's the justification? How does this work? How do we walk in it? Number one, it, we're, justified, uh, uh, we're justified by grace. Number two, we're justified by the blood of Jesus. And then finally, the means. You have the source. The source of justification is Grace, the, 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 the ground of justification is, is the blood, and the means or the method of justification is faith. How do we actually receive this? He says several times, verse 25, he says, by his blood to be received, everybody say received, by faith. Look at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? We can't boast. It's excluded. By what kind of law? Uh, by a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he came up with the most exquisite Christian formula 
in theology ever when he said it's sola fide, which means that we are saved by faith alone. Now, it's interesting because the Bible never says faith alone. It never says that. But the context does. We are saved by faith, not by works. There's no boasting before God. That means that we receive this grace, we receive the message of the blood by faith. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 5, and then I'll be done. It says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, beloved, how do we become righteous in this final verdict? We receive a righteousness that God gives as a gift by faith. Now, it's very important. Here's, here's the most important thing to, to understand about faith and believing in Jesus for a salvation. It's important to understand. It is not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the quality of the object that you put your faith in. And why is that important? That's important because we're always going to wonder, is my faith good enough? Did I, like, did I believe good enough? Is, did I have a great enough faith to save me? It's not a work. It's a reception in an empty hand. It's the quality of Jesus Christ. We lay hold of Jesus simply and simply receive what only he can give to us. Another good way to, to look at it, and I'll be done, I'm almost done. The, another good way to look at it is he says in verse 31, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. He goes on to describe that. But what Paul is saying there is he's saying this. Look, the law of God was given to do something in our life. And you know what it was supposed to do? It was supposed to lead us into a relationship with God. It was supposed to connect us to God. The law was supposed to be a mediator between us and God. And if we achieved the the law of God, we would be connected with with, with, with God. So faith upholds the law because faith does for us what the law can't do for us. Faith connects us to what God is and who he is and what he provides. And so we are saved by faith. Jesus would say in John chapter 5, He who believes in me will not be condemned, but will be saved just by believing in him. Let me give you an illustration to close out this sermon. It comes from uh, John Piper. John Piper has a great illustration to describe how great faith is. And how simple faith is. And his illustration is a roller coaster. How many of y'all like to ride on roller coasters, right? All right, a few of you. And so when you go, when you go to a roller coaster at Six Flags, you're, I'm always taken back by how tall they are, aren't you? I'm always surprised at how, I mean, you know, it's just like, oh my goodness. And it goes way up in the air and everything like that. And what the law of God is, is law of God says, I want you to go around on this roller coaster. I want you to climb up it. I want you to walk the tracks. How terrifying would that be, by the way? Climb up the Superman. How many of y'all ridden on the Superman at Six Flags? That thing's fast. All right? You climb all the way up to the top and then climb down the hill and you, and you have to walk the tracks. And you know what would happen to most of us? Most of us would die because we'd fall off the side of the, of the tracks, right? The law of God is like, come and have a relationship with God. And you know what? We can't do it because we can't climb all of that. We can't do all of that. It's exhausting. It would wear us out. We would die of either thirst or falling off the side. There's no way. So what is faith? Faith is still all about the roller coaster. It's still all about being connected to God. But what it is is it says, you know what? 
Jesus is the one who will take me on the ride. Jesus is the one, and by faith, I'm going to get on the roller coaster that will, that will take me up, that will take me down, that will guide me around. Jesus is the one that's going to save me. Jesus is the one that's going to connect me to God. Jesus is the one that's going to transform me. And so I am going to get into Jesus by faith alone. You see that? And let me ask you a question. If the final verdict of your life were to happen today, would you be justified or would you be condemned? And the difference is, do you believe in Christ for your salvation? Do you believe in Christ to make you right with God or are you trusting in yourself? Are you trying to save yourself or are you finally willing to surrender and let God save you with his grace, by his blood, and through faith alone? Let's pray.